Hello, welcome to Nature Mono, an environmental humanities podcast. I'm your host, John L. Pitt. This is episode seven of season one, Oceanic Japan. My guest today is Christine Marin, professor of Japanese literature and cultural studies at the University of Minnesota. She's the author of the 2017 book, Ecology Without Culture, Aesthetics for a Toxic World. In this important work, she argues that environmental thinking requires a critique of culture. And she does this by introducing key concepts, such as biotrope, ethnic environmentalism, and obligatory or obligate storytelling. One of the focuses of her book is the methylmercury poisoning of Minamata Bay a legacy of industrial pollution that has drawn many scholars in the environmental humanities to the writings of Ishimure Michiko and the documentary films of Tsuchimoto Noriaki. Please enjoy my conversation with Christine Marin, in which we discuss the implications of Minamata and obligate storytelling for the concept of oceanic Japan. Again, thank you so much for joining me uh, here today. And you know, I really want to focus our conversation on your 2017 book, um, Ecology Without Culture, Aesthetics for a Toxic World. Uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it's really one of the finest works of environmental humanities scholarship um, that I've come across within the field of Japanese studies. Um, and also because one of your main focuses in the book is the industrial poisoning of the Shiranui Sea, right, off the coast of Minamata in Southern Japan. Um, so there is a strong oceanic element to the book. Uh, but before we discuss the specifics of the book, um, I wanted to ask kind of a bigger question, um, a broader question about the study of ecology and the environment within Japanese studies. So I'm curious um, for your perspective, if you have an opinion whether or not you think the ocean uh, in particular has been adequately addressed in scholarship on Japanese literature or Japanese film, um, up until this point, you know, is it your sense that um, the very materiality of the ocean has been taken seriously, or has it been sort of studied more predominantly through metaphor? So, John, thank you for having me, and thank you for reading Ecology Without Culture. I appreciate your kind words about that book because I wasn't sure how it would be received. Um, a lot of claims about Japanese culture that have been made in the past uh, require seeing Japan as having this, this special relationship to nature and this unique relationship to the environment. And so I thought there might be more pushback against the book, but actually I think in fact, readers have been really ready to analyze um, how we treat environments through relationships other than ones that are articulated vis-a-vis -vis the nation state um, or the eth ethnocentrism in the case of, of Japan. So that's that's been really nice. Um, I think you're right when you say that we have tended to see less of the ocean and bodies of water in especially my fields of Japanese literature and Japanese cinema, but also in Japan studies. Of course, we have people like um, Professor Bill Tsutsui's work on the Pelagic Empire, which I think is really interesting because in that 
work, he points out how we've tended to see empire and imperialist conquest um, by Japan and Japan studies primarily through land-based definitions. Mm -hmm. And I think when we start to look at bodies of water, we can better see different relationships and power struggles that emerge in that colonial context. Um, and even now, you know, in the post-colonial context. So in, in this sense, he's pointing out how there's a lot uh, that oceans can help us see in terms of broader power struggles. Um, and th in that sense, I think the ocean remains this open terrain for thinking mm -hmm. in a certain sense. Um, in the case of Japanese literature and especially cinema, it is strange that we haven't had more attention to water and bodies of water. The fields seem to be so centralized around maybe urban studies, writers and filmmakers that emerge out of Tokyo. Um, and maybe this is because some Japan is so deeply centralized because you mm -hmm. have, um, you know, uh, business, education, you know, the top so-called top institutions, uh, centralized government, all in Tokyo. And so, if that's the case, then it's almost a matter of course that places where we have such interesting, I'm going to say, bodies of water, interesting ocean-related issues emerging, whether it be Hokkaido, Aomori, Okinawa. Um, the, it, maybe it's a matter of course that these tend to get marginalized in our literary production, film production, and then the research of these texts. Um, of course, there are always outliers. And one film that I always show in my film class is a film called All About Lily Shushu by Iwai Shunji, if you've seen that. Yeah, it's a and, great film. Right. And so yeah. right in the middle of that film, these five teenage boys steal a wad of money in a parking lot and they go to Okinawa mm -hmm. and they have this deep water experience. They characterize this deep water experience and this functions as a complete turning point for the film. And you can't read the film at all without paying really close attention to what's going on in that inserted shot uh, sequence of scenes, which is mostly filmed with handheld camera, right. right? Right. And so what's interesting there is that Okinawa, for example, is um, it's a marginal faraway place, but also completely central mm -hmm. to the characters and their lives in Tokyo. And so to me, that's pretty symbolic of a kind of dynamic that seems to drive how we bring bodies of water or oceans into our study. It's like completely central to what we do, but at the same time, there's this sense that these places are, are far away and we need to pay special attention. We need to go to the so-called margins to find these texts or to find these spaces and think about them. I, I've, I'm often struck by that film in particular, you know, because so much, I think when, when I've shown it to students in the past, they really want to talk about fan culture, right? And, and the kind of, media ecology that's unfolding in that film but there is also this this that moment that is so crucial you're right so that's that's a good reminder i, I haven't thought about that film in a while um yeah. so let's yeah. turn to um your book ecology without culture um and you know already i think we're 
in a discussion about media, forms of media, and it's a very rich um, text for engaging with different forms of media. Um, but in particular, right, it's looking at, um, well, one, one of the focuses, right, is about Minamata. Um, and so, so much has been written about Minamata, Minamata disease. Uh, and so, you know, some of our listeners will no doubt be very familiar with this history. But, you know, for those listeners who might not be familiar with uh, the events that took place and continue to unfold in Minamata, I wonder if you could offer something of a brief explanation of what, what exactly happened in the Shiranui Sea. Um, and also, I'm, I'm curious um, if you could offer your thoughts on why you think Minamata really has attracted so much scholarly attention. It really is a hard question because as you say, so many people from so many disciplines have thought about Minamata. So the question really for me is, okay, then where did I begin? Mm. And I have to say, I have a debt of gratitude to the translator of Ishimure Michiko's novel, uh, Livia Monet, who, so when I was younger and learning Japanese and so on, had made this book available to those of us reading in English. Yeah. And the writing was so powerful. And then I came to learn that I'm not the only one who thought that Ishimure Michiko's writing about the events that occurred in Minamata were powerful because the filmmaker, right, Tsuchimoto Noriaki, who eventually made 17 films about Minamata over the course of decades, had called this book, you know, the reason why the eyes of the world were suddenly on Minamata and he calls it this bone scraping prose. And it's a very active, fresh writing, fresh approach to the people living in this space. So this for me being again, literature scholar is a powerful thing to say that you could have a work that goes out in the world and makes honest to goodness change uh, mm. because Remember, Niigata had its own mercury poisoning disease. Right. The Showa Power Company was dumping mercury into the water there. And hundreds of people were getting very sick. And actually, in the case of Niigata, that case closed in the sense of the company was found negligent prior to Chiso the uh, company at stake in um, Minamata, the one that was dumping toxic effluent into the water, into the Shiranui, into the Minamata River, and then therefore the Shiranui Sea because of currents and so on. Mm -hmm. For decades, they were found negligent after the Niigata case. Um, but we don't know much, comparatively speaking, about the Niigata case, right? Right. Why is that? Yeah. Because of Ishimure's book that brought people in to see what was happening, what was going on. Um, photographers from Japan and then also Eugene Smith, that, who we all know about because Johnny Depp has this film coming out or is right. out, but we still don't have access to it because of the pandemic, but who, where he plays Eugene Smith. And then of course, Eileen Smith, who became very active around different, looking at different places in the world that had um, this sort of, 
right? Waterborne and fishborne um, disease. She's another important figure here, but we'll put Eileen Smith aside for a second and just again, focus on the point that Ishimude's novel is the place that I started and mm. Ishimude's novel is, is the place where we hear all the voices that were involved in this case. So that was just the beginning of saying there are three different, I think, constituencies maybe that we could point to in the case of the problem of um, Minamata. Mm -hmm. uh, the first constituency would be the fisher folk who live, living on all kinds of these small islands in the Shiranui Sea and depending mm -hmm. on the ocean for their food source. But then what we later learn is that through a process of biomagnification and bioaccumulation, the mercury that had been dumped by the Chiso Corporation um, into the Minamata River and then it was going flowing out into the Shiranui Sea was creating this toxic food source. And so people started getting really, really sick. Right. Um, at the same time, this group, this constituency would comprise in terms of just population you know, minority of the population in Minamata because most of the people in Minamata are they're working at the Chiso Corporation. Mm -hmm. Therefore, any accusation against the corporation for hurting, causing harm to the fishermen would was taken pretty negatively. Right. So it's really not the case even today that there was all around support for these fisher folk. In fact, it was quite the opposite and they were treated very badly. Uh, and I remember going to Minamata five years ago now, seems like yesterday, but when I was at the train station with a guide who works at the Minamata Museum there and so on. Mm -hmm. And her father was the one who did the, was a doctor who was you know, working with patients and trying to understand their symptoms and trying to figure out what lies at the bottom of these symptoms. She was talking about how there had been a case in the train station, a glass case with Ishimune's work in it. Hmm. And, you know, remembering her work and what happened in the case of um, Minamata disease and how it affected people. And the train station got phone calls and got complaints Wow! and wanted that gone and wanted that case that featured her Ishimune's work gone because they want to forget yeah, and they want to move on and they want Minamata to be, you know, a place where um, people can work in this factory can, or this corporation continue to do it's, it's good business. And so there people who called in were all about sort of erasing in that sense, the memory um, of what happened in Minamata, especially in the late sixties and early seventies. So, okay, I want to um, ask about uh, this term that you, this concept that you introduce in the book, and I, I think it kind of gets to some of these things that you're already talking about. Um, this is the concept of the biotrope. And in your introduction, um, you say that this term, this concept, the biotrope, allows you to, quote, 
foreground the point that representations of the biological world inherently indicate both the material and the semiotic, end quote. So um, I'm wondering if you could explain how the concept of a biotrope does this and why you think it's important to account for the material in addition to the semiotic uh, when discussing representations of the biological world. Yeah, the biotrope. So this is another case of just asking, why are we so terrible in analyzing literature in literary studies for the more than human world? <laughs> and how can we get better? And I'm not saying I'm the first person to be thinking about this, but in some ways I tend to be maybe a little pragmatic in my approach because I just wanna create tools uh, right. for me, for my students for how we can think about the more than human world in more creative ways than we do. So I, first of all, tried to write the entire book without using the word anthropomorphism. I tried to write the book not using the word personification. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean these things don't happen. It just means for now, and it doesn't mean that I'm not talking about these things in my next project, I am. But what it means is for this, this book, I just wanted to show how deeply we rely on the material world or the bios to produce our cultures. You know, they are always instrumentalized toward, you know, cultural meaning, uh, meaning for certain identities that we want to produce. We're super reliant on the material world to create ideas about ourselves. And that's the trope part, trope. Mm -hmm. They were so reliant on the natural world to produce tropes to explain ourselves to ourselves. So the question then became, okay, but what if we were going to try to use the natural world to explain the natural world to itself <laughs> right, right. kind of idea. Mm -hmm. Just can we relieve the material world of always having to do so much symbolic work for us? Can we stop so desperately using the more than human world to create meaning and value for us? And so I guess it was a way of saying, what would happen if you did relieve a term or an image of having to be symbol or metaphor, except for itself, or try to at least bring the history of a thing or an entity in there at the same time? Um, could we do it? How would we do it? And the good news is, is Ishimude does it all the time. And so she had these strategies. I see them as strategies, but mm -hmm. um, way of writing. Uh, through which she was able, I feel, to undermine the instrumentalization of natural images or the environment and more the human world to always be symbolic for human culture. And so I think Livia Monet uses the word decolonization, no narrative, but it's some sense you could say that it's a way of decolonizing language so that it's not always produced toward human meaning and value or cultural meaning and value. So I'm hoping that Maybe people will try it out and use the term um, regularly to say, okay, now we're right now we're, we're done reading this um, as symbol or metaphor and, and we're gonna try to read this some other way. Yeah, it's really a useful tool for that. I mean, this is something I push my undergraduate students to think about 
right, is how to kind of break out of that metaphorical thinking, right? Thinking everything is symbolic, everything is metaphor. So it's one of the things I really appreciate appreciate about your book is you you do offer these tools, right? These heuristics to to kind of move us beyond that. Um, and so in addition to biotrope, you have this really, really great uh, concept of obligate storytelling. And so I, I want to ask you a little bit about that, um, particularly in relation to Ichimude. You're talking about how Ishimura has these um, oh, strategies. strategies, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I think maybe that's related to your, your concept of obligate storytelling. Um, in your introduction, uh, actually not the introduction, this is the, the first chapter, right? Really gets into this. Um, and it's one of your kind of main interventions in ecology without culture um, is to say that Ishimura's work exemplifies this mode of storytelling, obligate storytelling. And you say that this quote, refuses literary forms that turn a vibrant and living environment to amber, end quote. Such a wonderful image. So could you tell us a little bit about what obligate storytelling is? And, um, you know, in particular with Ishimure, how, how does this relate back to the sea? So another thing that I try to keep in mind as an environmental humanist is to uh, understand how biological principles work. Mm-hmm. and have some relatively firm grounding in the science of an you know entity that we're looking at when it comes to especially thinking about environment or trying to write eco-criticism or something like that. And so in the case of Minamata disease, which is um, mercury poisoning, Clearly, the scientific principles that were discovered at this time at the site of Minamata were the two principles of bioaccumulation and biomagnification. And the, these processes clearly exhibit our relationships <laughs> to um, other entities in the world. So it's a very much a kind of material approach to the idea that we can either treat the environment as an an object out there you know Mm -hmm. this is where modern Japanese literature started but an object out there an object of vision outside of ourselves this is what Karatani Kojin really shows when he writes about the origin of Japanese literature as lying within the quote discovery of landscape sure you discover the landscape as outside the self this thing that allows you not only to position yourself as a human being in front of the backdrop, the landscape, but which also allows you to understand yourself as a subject. Mm -hmm. You use the landscape out there to produce, it's an interesting argument, right? The kind of production of the self, right? Interiority. You need that outside to get, an insight. Right, right. And so, so the, so if we said no, because if we look at how we are in the world, that what we, we are, what we eat, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, we emerge as a subject in an environment and the health of that environment deeply matters. Mm-hmm. If we take that as a kind of just a basic principle, then we can also say that the production of our ourselves is reliant on our relationship with the more than human world entities like water 
-hmm. in the environment. So the idea around obligate storytelling is to A, reject that sort of vision that Karatani produces as the origins of modern Japanese literature. And also to say, yeah, we, we can tell a story instrumentalizing the environment as this objective thing that we're describing, or we can write to it. Mm-hmm. We can write to the landscape itself. And the idea is that you're able to show an attention to how your narrative plays to those about whom you're writing. Mm-hmm. And so Tsushimoto was the classic case of someone who made a mistake. Okay. And fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> because he originally came to Minamata and filmed a documentary and it was for use for TV. And it was very quick and he was deeply criticized by people living in Minamata for how he portrayed them. Mm-hmm. Because he completely wrote within this frame that was familiar um, frame that people were using, uh, producers were using on television and so on and so forth. It was an instrumentalizing frame where he's the viewer, the subject, and then his what he's you know, filming and so on is the object and people in documentary film studies and so on can speak to that. But for me, what transpired later when Tsuchimoto felt so sorry about it mm-hmm. and came back and said, I'm going to do it right this time. What he's saying is the very least I can do is com- really try to imagine how the image I create speaks to is accepted or not accepted by the people in filming. This is where I'm trying to go with this idea of obligate storytelling. Not with the term, you are obligated. It's not, it's not an ethical term. Mm-hmm. It's more based on the idea that we depend on each other, whether we're a producer, a writer, a filmmaker, and our narratives need to be especially good for those about whom we are writing whose stories we're telling and has to be inclusive of the more than human world. Again, I find it such a useful term um, and I hadn't hadn't really at least consciously thought about it in contradistinction to Karatani Kojin, but that makes a whole lot of sense, (laughs) right? It would be really useful, um, I'm imagining, for, for students to kind of read those side by side, your work and and the, the discovery of landscape and to think about them that way. So, I mean, to think about like, uh, I mean, I was a little also thinking about Derrida when he writes about himself, when the cat mm-hmm. sees him naked and so on. And it's this opportunity to get really into his first person discourse. There's an a, attempt there to, I guess, understand cat as other, but is there a different way to go other than you know, recognizing the otherness of cat or something. Right. There has to be a kind of, I guess, generosity there mm-hmm. in really getting in the weeds for how you strategically imagine 
this other being and that interiority, which you'll never have access to. This is what I'm interested in right now is speculation. Right. So we know we have, I'm super interested in speculation because the thing is, is it's not just human beings who can have interiority. So I'm interested, and maybe we'll talk about it later. My next project is about animals mm-hmm. because, um, because I want to talk about interiority and rethink interiority. And then how do you project, project interiority for more than human entity, like an animal? All you can do is speculate. So I think obligate storytelling, it's a form of speculation, but you can do cool things with it because you can give mind or interiority to other entities through it. Well, that that brings me to to my next question, um, which is about rocks (laughs) and about (laughs) water and ocean, right? So you make this really fascinating claim in the the first chapter of the book. Um, I'm going to quote you here. Quote, in obligate storytelling, there is no epistemological question of how we can know whether a stone or an ocean speaks. Rather, it expresses an invitation to hear other histories, those before humanity's birth and after after the delivery of industrial modernity, end quote. So, you know, this discussion about speculation, about imagining, speculating about interiorities of of cats and rocks and, and the sea itself, you know, for listeners who haven't read your book yet, um, hearing this claim might call to mind concepts of animism, right? But you make very clear that what Ishimure is doing in her work cannot be accounted for by, you know, conventional claims to animism. Could you talk about this a little bit? Why do you feel the need to distance Ishimure's work from notions of animism? So I think first for me, animism is within the realm of Japan studies probably conceived or just images of Japan and what Japan is or claimed from within about what Japan is or isn't. Animism has been a tool. Um, It's been a tool for critiquing the West. Uh, It's been a a tool for people I call ethnic environmentalists, those who people who are really trying to do what's best for the archipelago um, animism has become a tool um, to say we can live differently. Mm-hmm. We can do this differently. We don't need to adhere to the sort of uh, <clears throat> industrial modernity, um, capitalism, and so on that we've inherited from the West. So, in this sense, animism as a concept can get really charged and be used to develop an image of, you know, constitutive exclusivity for Japan. Japan's different. Right. So first of all, for me, easy point is Japan is not different. Japan is a highly industrialized nation. At one point it was the second largest GDP in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has had a lot of problems as a result of rapid development and Animism has been used as a tool by these ethnic environmentalists to claim that Japan is different and had, you know, and, and if it has, I guess, hurt the environment through its industrial practices, that's just because it was sleepwalking through a Western modernity. And, but if we only wake up, we can return to the Japanese way of being, which will save us. I want to critique that discourse. And that means I think that animism in that context really becomes a problem if I'm going to embrace it. The Mm -hmm. other thing is that 
the animistic religion of Shintoism is a state religion associated with Japanese imperialism, as you know. Uh, from and so I get nervous around Japanese animism for that reason as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I think animism is deeply ideological in the case of Japan, and we need to recognize that. Mm-hmm. There are other ways of thinking about animism, you know, as whether we want to call it a kind of root religious outlook or way of invoking some kind of soul for the more than human world that other anthropologists have written about in more detail than I. But what I find to be a little bit, I guess, problematic is it seems that a lot of times the soul or the self or the being that we intuit for the more than human being through this animistic thinking often really seems humanistic. Mm. Uh, is a kind of projection going on mm-hmm. or there's a claim to bring up um, raise the I don't know status of the more than human world by invoking them as as humanistic as we are and so I reject that so that's why I'm interested in the speculative because it's the only way that you can and that's not the only way to me right now, it's my favorite way mm-hmm. of saying, yes, okay, there's a subject there, there's an interior there, maybe there's a mind there, but I'm going to posit it as that thing which I only speculate about in order that I do not project about it. Right. That I do not project humanistic understanding onto it. Right. So you can see I'm a little bit enamored of Stephen Shaviro's book, The Universe of Things here when he writes about speculative realism. I think there's a lot in there that one can use toward thinking about animal being. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do right now in my current project. Great. Well, I I definitely want to ask you about that project in a minute. But before we get there, um, there are a couple lines in the book that really have stuck with me, uh, you know, since reading the book back when it came out and um, has informed, you know, I think my own thinking about writing about Japan, doing research about Japan, talking about Japan. Um, And so, uh, you know, I'm going to uh, read you, uh, read read from your book at length here a little bit. Um, And this is another intervention that you, you take in the book, right? So, let me, I'll back up a, a, a bit here. So, you know, you, you pay such close attention to the materiality of the biological world, um, you know, including the materiality of the ocean. And so I think what's really great there is that it allows you to move between media, right, in, in, in interesting ways, between literature and film, right? It's very productive in that way. Um, but it also, you know, this, this focus on the material world allows you to discuss non-Japanese works of literature, right? In this book that is ostensibly about Japan. And so you actually start the book uh, with a discussion of um, Wu Mingyi's The Man with the Compound Eyes. And so, you know, I feel like this is really the core of the book in some ways, if, if I'm understanding it correctly, right? That you're, you're really resisting these culturally essentialist claims about the nation state by turning to ecology. And, and so this is, this is the really pr- uh, provocative claim that's, that's always stuck with me. You say in the introduction here, quote, uh, at this point in the history of global warming, 
from a geophysical point of view, there is no definitive east, and east is in scare quotes there, though there is an east as a direction on a GIS map or the Gaia app. East might be a direction of a radiation plume as it drifts across the Pacific. If there is no consequential question to which the east is the answer, it is because the toxic drift of industrial modernity either knows no such borders or is caught up in one of the swirling gyres of our anthropogenic ep epochs oceans, end quote. And then you make a similar claim just a few pages later, you write, quote, there is no consequential question regarding the works discussed in this book to which Japan is the answer. And so again, I've always been really struck by that point. Um, and I've spoken to past guests about how the ocean you know, in particular opens up this trans-Pacific view of history, religion, literature, et cetera. But you seem to be saying something even bigger here, right? That perhaps even notions of a trans-Pacific are somewhat untenable when we think about global warming, when we really think about the material world. So um, I've, I've long wanted to ask you about this idea, right? That there is no consequential question to which either the East or Japan is the answer. Why is that so important to you to, to include in your book? Um, could you talk a little bit about that? What I want to talk about might sound naive, but I think that for me, these concepts of Japan or the concept of East, in other words, East versus West mm -hmm. or the East, which is the rest of the West. Once we are able to answer you know, with the word Japan or the East or something, we've already, we've already decided basically where we want to go. We've already right. really decided our terms of engagement. And how are we supposed to get out of that? I mean, I think the question of whether trans-Pacific is a geopolitical term that eventually could limit us in terms of what we can say about the material world is a good one. Mm -hmm. And I think there depending on how this term or concept gets used, there's a lot that can, can be done there and that we surely wanna look for different relationships that exist in ter geopolitical terms um, outside of, right? And what another one of your guests talked about is methodological nationalism or the nation right. state. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. But again, the ocean currents, for example, which is, comes up in the beginning of Man with the Compound Eyes mm -hmm. is all about the ways in which the ocean current brings uh, plastics together in such a way that they create an island. They right. create their own island. And then there's another novel, Ruth Ozeki's Tale for the Time Being, which also takes as a major feature within the narrative, the ocean current, the gyre, the turtle gyre in the, in the novel. Mm -hmm. And that current creates completely unsuspected new relationships among the characters. Right. You couldn't anticipate what their relationship would be because that relationship with these characters in this novel did not exist prior to and could not have existed prior to this current. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about Ruth Ozeki's book is that these are real currents, right? There are five of these gyres in the world. And these currents bring together people, entities, whatever, turtles, 
the garbage mm -hmm. of Fukushima, meaning not that it's garbage, but that it's the refuse, the right, the things that got pulled out to sea, all of these objects got are getting moved around by these currents. And we don't know who's going to be brought together through them. And so there's a really interesting case. I'm from Oregon. And so I was walking along the Oregon coast, uh, finding objects from the Northeastern seaboard of Japan. Wow. They very clearly had come from Japan. And then of course we had bigger pieces, like an entire pier deck thing that floated up on the shore in Oregon and everybody was told don't touch it we don't know if it's radiated and so on and so forth and they ended up saving some of it in Newport and you can go look at it and and then you had the, you had objects that floated up in the Aleutians from um, the northeastern seaboard of Japan and people living on these islands discovered these objects and wanted to return them and they did right right and through the returning of these objects which could have been the sneakers of a boy or a soccer ball. There was a case of a soccer ball actually got returned to the right boy. Wow. And then there was the more known case of the tori from a shrine, the gate from a shrine that had washed up in two pieces. And Jeffrey Hofer told me this whole story. He was deeply involved in it. And also uh, the Portland, um, I want to say Garden Society, but that's probably the incorrect name, and I apologize for that. It worked really hard to figure out to whom does this tori belong? Mm -hmm. And eventually found them and returned it. And it was from Hachinohe up north. Mm. And it was from a shrine that protect fishermen going out to the sea. So these ocean currents brought objects to people and then people brought themselves to each other and you have these new relationships that you could have never anticipated but for the ocean but for the currents that's so that's why you have to follow sometimes rather than be moved by these geopolitical relationships you got to follow the material world is how i feel and see Who's at the other end of it? And who is your ally? And who is your friend? Did you know that there's a mascot for the Kuroshio current in Japan, John? It's did you know that? Was I the only one who didn't know that? You know, I, I didn't know that, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> I feel like there, if you can imagine there being a mascot for something, somewhere there is. Um, what, <laughs> what, what, what sort of form does it take? What does it look so like? So as you can imagine, the mascot's blue and mm -hmm. it's plushy. Sure. Uh, very plushy blue. It's a wave. Okay. It's like a current. It's a, yeah, it's a <laughs> wave. It's like a current. Wow. <laughs> and it's the Kochi Prefecture, Kochi Prefecture mascot, but okay. it's not a mascot for the prefecture. It's a mascot for the current sure. because the current is so important. The Kuroshio current that brings all the warm water up and then meets the cold current that comes down from the north. And then you have these rich fishing sites around Sendai in that area because these two currents meet. 
And so they're just like paying respect to the current. They made a mascot for the Kurdo Shield current. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. I mean, there are. The, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, you know, you said you didn't want to talk about anthropocentrism, right? But <laughs> there's something about mascot culture in general that I feel like is really ripe for a, a deep sort of critical <laughs> <laughs> investigation. Um, but I do want to uh, ask you about this this new project that you're undertaking. Um, speculative project. It sounds like involving non-human animals. Could you say a little bit about what? I don't know if this is the next book project or, or what, but where is, where is your research at the moment? Yeah. So it's called first person animal. Nice. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and so it really is about, although talking with you about the oceans make me think, hmm, because I am so deeply invested in water and oceans. I have to say I've always been. And I've always wanted to write a book about sailboats in Japan. Mm. Um, in Minamata, when they fished, originally they used these gorgeous sailboats, uh, the kind that I can't even imagine how you would sail it. But I think they set up the sails so that you can easily, using sails moving in different directions at the same time, hold a boat in place while you're fishing and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I know so little about these boats that truly my dream has been to write about how certain sailboats sort of respond in, in the Japanese um, context to say, like, why were these boats used on the Shiranui Sea? Mm -hmm. And why aren't they used anymore? Or just to know more about these sailboats. And also I was completely a fanatic of the Vendée Globe this year, which is the world race. And so you have these Emoka 60 boats that are huge boats that are being single handed sailing around the world. Mm -hmm. And the Vendée Globe this year just had its first Asian sailor participate. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so his name is Shiraishi Kojiro, and he's from um, the big sailing city of Kamakura. And so I followed him on Instagram and wrote him many emails saying, It's a really intense, intense race. And it's so curious to me why this is the first year that there's been an Asian sailor in this race. Yeah, that's uh, com shocking. Completed the race. I mean, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I love the, uh, I just, I haven't really found much around uh, vessels and, you know, the meaning of the wind and the water and the, and the sail. I haven't found much on that in, in the case of Japan. It's always been curious to me why. Mm. But I'm also worried about animal extinction. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> I thought, that if I can just do my small part to imagine again further more detail maybe around this concept of obligate storytelling how do you write the more than human um, and in such a way that it is meaningful to that um, entity's sort of history and experience I guess you could say 
And so that's why I started writing about first person animal, because I think we could take ideas around um, first person discourse, free and direct discourse, interiority and speculative realism and move them all toward a different way of thinking about animal being in literature and cinema. That's great. I really look forward to reading that. Um, do you have any particular texts that you're working on just out of curiosity? Yeah. So, um, of course, Tawada Yoko's in English, Memoirs of a Polar Bear. Right. And that will be coming out pretty soon in MLA. Great. Which was originally um, written also, in German, right? That that novel. I know. So it's perfect. Yeah. Right? Because it just really allows... It feels like a shishosetsu. It feels like an mm-hmm. eye novel. Yeah. Like a triple eye novel. And so... And we know we have this whole discourse around what eye novels do and don't do with regard to speculation. We're always speculating. It's, is it true? Is it not true? Sure. I mean, we already have this device for us in this long-term literary form in Japan. So Mm -hmm. what if we were to try to take sort of the, the philosophy of the way of thinking around the shisho sets of the eye novel and, and see how it's, concept of free indirect discourse could be used to project the possibility of animal being or interiority on, in terms of literary production. That's great. I'm going to try that. But also Sonny Coombe's films I've been writing about. So Sonny Coombe is a filmmaker who in um, her amazing films, my favorite being Dear Dear, which is about when she's living near Agra in India, she films these dogs and she ends up taking one in and the dog dies and it's not exactly clear why, but her films inevitably bring in um, issues of North Koreans living in Japan, especially female bodies. And then on top of that, animals, uh, roadkill in the case of of uh, one film and then of course in Dear Deer the dog figure and so on and so what's going on there with Sony Kim's films is what I'm asking what does the animal figure do in her films and it's so clear that she's invested in creating analogies for how bodies are made to be precarious whether they're human or more than human and it's also very clear that she wants to speak to human, especially um, female experience, but also animal experience. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, so how does she do it? That's, so she's um, someone that I'm interested in as well. And then I'm doing a chapter on uh, trap cams, animal oh, trap okay. cams. Wow. So that image too, so the still that you get in trap cams and when the animal's like looking into the frame. Right, right. You know, what do we do with that image? So I call them environmental incidentals because we have this history in cinema of talking about environmental incidentals in early, early, early cinema where the, oh, actually this is a wave or ocean related thing. Okay. One of the early environmental incidentals is when the it's in a Lumiere film mm-hmm. um, where the boat is going out and so you and there are some ladies on a pier and they're waving goodbye goodbye but this big wave comes and pushes the boat back in (laughs) and so the whole film is changed you know what they had planned to do didn't happen because of this wave right right 
So this is an environmental incidental. And then other environmental incidentals would be, you know, that famous short film, again, early film, uh, baby eating food, but really what people were interested in were the shimmering leaves and the wind in the leaves and that sort of thing. That's an environmental incidental. So anyway, my, I, my thinking is like, what do we do with these trap cam images? Like we put the cameras out there to film the animal and, but we expect them to show up a certain way. But then when they turn to the camera, that's something different. And then on top of that, we have human incidentals because humans apparently really mess up um, scientists' trap cams that they're using to study animals mm. because they end up bringing their dogs in that space or they end up, you'll see them urinating on camera and then you can't use that footage or their right. privacy right. reasons and all kinds of interesting things come up with the, uh, with the trap cam. And so how do you articulate um, uh, that sort of medium, whether it's used by scientists or by um, gardeners, you know, or I mean, passed around on social media. I, I I think about how often I come across some of those images, right, on Twitter and Instagram and things like that. I think they're they're very compelling images for people, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think that's my sort of ace in the whole final chapter. Mm -hmm. um, which shows how we how much we deeply want to understand, you know, that interiority. Right. I mean, there's just this profuse amount of these these videos, as you point out, shows us that we want ways of talking about these these minds. Right. Of course, scientists are doing this. I mean, of course, we have all these studies about cognitive behaviors and and so on this is i'm coming at it from the perspective of i guess literature and cinema right and and other image making media well this has been such a fascinating conversation and i i could go on and on i feel like but we i only have one more question for you and if you've listened to the podcast you know um that i ask everyone this question which is about your own history with the ocean you mentioned that you're from oregon and it seems you have a strong interest in sailing did you grow up sailing by any chance? I did. I spent a lot of time on sailboats, especially in the southern Puget Sound. Mm. So we would take a ferry where Kurt Cobain lived, a Stilicum. Okay. And cross over to an island and had a boat there <clears throat> that we sailed in the southern Puget Sound. And really, really beautiful. Um, and then the first, second time I went to Japan, I ended up in Aomori and mm -hmm. there's a park there called Gapokoen and there was this kind of rundown guy who was in a van who rented out these little sailboats and so I went there so often that I kind of started running out of money to <laughs> rent these sailboats and at some point I was trying to barter with him like how could what can I do <laughs> um to you know, get access to these boats. It, was, it probably wasn't that expensive, but I was trying to save money for graduate school. Yeah, different different circumstances for sure. <laughs> but I had, and then I did go back, and I was um, sailing again in the Puget Sound, and I try to sail here as well. But I had a story about that that I thought because I did listen to the other podcasts and notice that you asked this question, and I have to say that. I think one of the 
ways to characterize my feeling of the ocean and the power of the currents, in addition to what we talked about earlier, which is that they create ways for us to come into contact with other entities or beings, um, is one time the current was just really intense. And so the currents can be really strong in the Puget Sound, mm -hmm. especially especially up north. Are you from that area? I'm, I'm not, no. I My time in the Pacific Northwest has been very limited, unfortunately. I have one, I, you know, I visited Portland, I think once, um, Seattle once, that's about it. So that's, mm. I have a very sort of romantic notion of what it's like up there. And I've enjoyed yeah. visiting, but uh, I don't know it very well. Yeah, as you know, I'm in Minnesota right now. And so I've sailed here a lot and Minnesota's super gusty. Hmm. So the currents are nothing, not much at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but the wind is super gusty and it's the opposite in the Puget Sound. The wind can be relatively smooth and predictable or the currents can be wildly strong and so mm -hmm. you can end up not even be able to go out because where you need to go is directly against the current and you're just not going to get enough wind to get you moving against the current so i really felt this one time when um the current we were moored off of an island and it was sandy we weren't that far off of the island but the current was so strong and I just couldn't help it. I had to get in it. And you know that water's cold. Right. <laughs> but I just had to. And so I climbed down and held onto the ladder and stern of the boat and just got pulled hard. And I could see all the things flying by me, like seaweed and driftwood and jellyfish and all this stuff. And all I had to do was let go and I'd be done because you wouldn't be able to very quickly get rolling at that point if you're anchored in and your sails aren't up. Mm -hmm. But I just remember feeling this tremendous power of the sea. Yeah. I love the ocean. I do too. <laughs> that was such a wonderful story. I feel like that's a, it's a great place to, to end the interview. So thank you so much for sharing that and um, all of your thoughts and I really encourage anyone listening to um, pick up a copy of Ecology Without Culture. It's it's really a fascinating book that, um, again, I think really offers good tools um, to bring literary studies, cinema studies into a, a new direction. So thank you again for joining me today. And uh, I can't wait to read um, First Person Animals when it comes out. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was really enjoyable and I hope we can talk about the ocean more. Ecology Without Culture, Aesthetics for a Toxic World, is available via University of Minnesota Press. My thanks to Christine Marin for the conversation today. Nature Mono is recorded and produced by me, John L. Pitt, with co-sponsorship support from the Humanities Center at the University of California, Irvine. Visit our website at naturemono, that's nature, M-O-N-O, dot com, and please subscribe and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.